If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Bi. It's Wonder Water. What makes Bi so great? It's simple. From Raspberry Lemon Lime by Sydney Sweeney to Zambia Bing Cherry and Palavo Pineapple Mango. Bai has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. So, for flavorful hydration, choose Bai. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Bai and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbai.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The golden age of Egyptology was a time of adventure and excitement, but also of rivalry, obsession and exploitation. The work of archaeologists in the late 19th and early 20th centuries transformed our understanding of the Nile Valley and its people, and left a lasting impression on Egypt too. That's the subject of today's talk from Toby Wilkinson, first delivered as part of our virtual lecture series. You can find out more about our lecture series, including upcoming talks in which you can put your own questions to the experts, at historyextra.com forward slash events. So good evening, everybody, and uh, it's a real pleasure to be able to share with you this evening uh, some uh, extracts from my new book, Well Beneath the Sands. The book covers the century or more between the uh, beginnings of Egyptology as a discipline uh, at the very end of the 18th century uh, and the perhaps most famous discovery of all time, uh, the tomb of Tutankhamun in 1922. Um, But we haven't got time this evening to to give you a blow-by-blow account of that century and a quarter. So what I've decided to do to to illustrate some of the main themes in the book is to choose five vignettes, if you will, five snapshots uh, from the history of the golden age of Egyptology. We'll start off uh, with uh, the cover illustration from the book, which is the famous Zodiac of Paris. And I'll talk about the importance of that artefact and how it really sparked a long running uh, feud between the French and the British in the scrabble for ancient Egypt. 
next. We will look at uh, one of the most famous uh, forms of art that to have been inspired by ancient Egypt, uh, namely Verdi's opera Aida and the story behind its first performance. Next, uh, we will look at uh, the, the history of scientific excavation in the Nile Valley and the remarkable woman um, who really ushered in at the beginnings of proper scientific excavation. Uh, next, we will look at what it was like to actually dig in Egypt in the 19th century uh, through the accounts of the excavations undertaken uh, by Flinders Petrie, who you see in the photograph here. And then finally, we will look at uh, the most famous discovery of all, uh, not so much the discovery itself, but what led up to uh, Howard Carter's great breakthrough in the Valley of the Kings. So those are our five vignettes spaced out in time across that century and a bit uh, between uh, the, 18th, uh, the late 18th century and the early 20th century. So let's start with our first episode, and this is uh, the Zodiac of Paris. Perhaps not as famous uh, to certainly an English-speaking audience uh, as it would be across the channel, but actually one of the most pivotal artefacts in the rediscovery of ancient Egypt. So the, the story of Egyptology begins with this man, Napoleon Bonaparte, and his famous expedition to Egypt in 1798. And there were twin aims of Napoleon's expedition. The first aim was military. He wanted to deny the British easy access to their Indian uh, colonies and knew that by capturing Egypt, capturing that northeast corner of Africa uh, along the eastern Mediterranean coast, he could effectively deny the British uh, that quick route to India. But as well as the military objective, Napoleon also wanted to uncover the secrets of Egypt's civilization. He was steeped in the classics and he knew that great empires before, uh, most of course, uh, most nominally, of course, uh, Rome, um, had glorified their capital and signaled their rise as a new power by displaying artifacts stolen from earlier civilizations. The ancient Romans had brought many Egyptian monuments to Rome, obelisks and sphinxes and so forth. And Napoleon saw himself as, as a kind of new Rome. France would be the new French Republic following in the footsteps of the Roman Republic. Um, and so he also wanted uh, to mount a scientific expedition to Egypt to sort of claim ancient Egyptian civilization for this new great power that he saw himself leading in France. So in 1798, he set sail from Toulon uh, on the Mediterranean coast of France with a huge flotilla of ships carrying not only soldiers, but also savants, uh, that is uh, intellectuals, architects, mathematicians, engineers, natural scientists. And their purpose was to record as much detail as they could of Egypt's heritage. And it was that rather fortunate conjunction of the military might and the scientific prowess that led to the discovery and the recognition of the first great artifact in the story of Egyptology. And that is, of course, the Rosetta Stone. Uh, the Rosetta Stone, part of a royal pro proclamation uh, written uh, in three different scripts, as you can see here, the bottom section in Greek, 
at the top section in hieroglyphics. And it was discovered by French soldiers who were fortifying uh, uh, an encampment at Rosetta or modern El Rashid in the north of Egypt. Um, and had they been just soldiers, they probably wouldn't have recognized this stone for the important artifact that it was. But because the Napoleonic expedition also had scholars alongside the soldiers, it was immediately recognized that this was a really important artifact and that it might hold the key to deciphering ancient Egyptian writing, which until this point was completely uh, undecipherable. So why, you might ask, did the Rosetta Stone end up in, in London, in the British Museum, and not in Paris, in the Louvre? Well, the answer to that was that uh, while Napoleon's uh, engineers and scientists and architects might have triumphed in the pursuit of science, his soldiers and sailors were roundly defeated by the British under the control of Admiral Lord Nelson in the famous Battle of the Nile. And as part of the war reparations, as part of the booty of that English victory over the French, many of the artefacts that Napoleon's expedition had uh, amassed were seized and taken to London, and with them, uh, the Rosetta Stone. And so, of course, today it is amongst the prize objects in the collections of the British Museum. Well, as you can imagine, this didn't go down terribly well with the French. Um, Napoleon had lost the war, but he was determined not to lose the fight for French cultural supremacy in the rediscovery of ancient Egyptian civilization. And he announced his intentions through the publication of probably the greatest ever set of volumes on ancient Egypt, the famous Description de l'Egypte, or Description of Egypt, um, starting in 1809, and it would take another 19 years before all the volumes in the series uh, were published. Here you see the frontispiece to the very first volume, uh, and you can see immediately uh, what Napoleon was trying to achieve through the publication uh, of his scientific expedition. You see the imperial cipher there, uh, the crowned N at the bottom of the, of the slide. You see either side uh, military victories, um, glossing over rather conveniently the military defeats, but emphasizing the victories that Napoleon as a general had won. And then underneath the spreading wings of the ancient Egyptian sun god, you have this tableau, this fictional montage of ancient Egypt with all the most recognizable symbols of that civilization, with an obelisk and a sphinx and a temple and some columns. And the idea was that France was now framing and claiming uh, Egyptian antiquity. But of course, there was still the matter of portable antiquities uh, and the Louvre wanted its fair share of objects to signal that France was a great imperial power, every bit as confident as ancient Rome had been. But the British had the Rosetta Stone. So what to do? Well, there was another famous artifact at this time, which was still in Egypt. And in fact, it was located in a temple. And here is the temple of the goddess Hathor at Dendera, Dendera is a site uh, about a couple of hours drive north of Luxor. And it's a beautiful temple, quite a late temple, actually, uh, finished uh, under the Ro early Roman emperors. Uh, beautifully decorated, as you can see, in, in multicolored pigments. 
And on the roof of this temple, there was a, sh a small chapel. And in the ceiling of that chapel uh, was a relief that had been noticed by Napoleon's expedition back in 1798. It was a zodiac that showed the constellations um, and various Egyptian deities around the outside. And the French badly wanted the zodiac of Dendra uh, as an equivalent to the Rosetta Stone, which now lay in London. And so in 1821, they dispatched an expedition under the control of uh, Monsieur Saulnier and Monsieur Le Laurent. And their job, quite simply, was to go to Dendra to hack out the zodiac from the ceiling of the roof channel and to bring it back to France. And they did so. Uh, and the zodiac of Paris, as it became known, caused a great sensation. People queued to see it. Um, uh, review shows were written about it. Songs were written about it. Everybody wanted to see the Zodiac of Paris. And it was regarded as a great triumph of French science and a bit of a uh, two-fingered salute to the British. But in fact, there was only one voice that was raised against the bringing of the Zodiac to Paris. And even then, it was uh, an anonymous voice. So great was the outpouring of nationalistic sentiment at the Zodiac's arrival. And so an anonymous letter was written to a French periodical uh, in October 1821. And the letter ran thus. We applaud the patriotic sentiments which guided this, our two compatriots, bold project, carried out so skillfully and successfully. But in congratulating Monsieur Saulnier and Le Lorrain on having so carefully transported the circular zodiac of Dendera from the banks of the Nile to those of the Seine and not the Thames, we cannot, however, refrain from expressing a certain regret that this magnificent temple has been deprived of one of its finest monuments. Should we in France follow the example of Lord Elgin? Certainly not. Well, the author of that anonymous letter was none other than Jean-Francois Champollion, the greatest Egypt uh, scholar of his day, not just in France, but in the whole of Europe. And the greatest of ironies was that just exactly a year after writing that letter, it would be Champollion who would decipher hieroglyphics and open the key to ancient Egypt, not with the benefit of the Zodiac of Paris, but thanks to the Rosetta Stone of London. So that ushered in more than a century of Franco-British rivalry in the scrabble for ancient Egypt. And if we turn to our next vignette, we will look at how that unfolded in the 1850s. So we fast forward by 30 years or so. And by now, the collections of uh, the British Museum had grown, and it was one of the great Egyptological collections uh, in Europe. Uh, the Prussians had started to get in on the act. Uh, various of the Italian city-states had built up collections of Egyptian objects. And the, the French were beginning to feel a little bit outdone, even though they had published the Description de l'Egypte, and even though Champollion had made the breakthrough in decipherment. And so in 1850, the Louvre sent this man, Auguste Mariette, 
he was a young scholar working at the Louvre. And in 1850, his employers sent him to Egypt with the one and only purpose of acquiring objects for the museum. Well, originally, he was sent to acquire papyrus manuscripts, and he went in search of them. But actually, the, the owners of these ancient manuscripts had already had their fingers badly burned by previous treasure hunters and collectors. And they decided, actually, they weren't going to part with any more of their precious documents. So they fobbed Mariette off. But not to be deterred, he decided to follow his own personal whim. He was well steeped in the classics, and he knew of classical authors' tales of a great underground mausoleum of sacred bulls called the Serapeum, which had been lost since antiquity. But Mariette had a photographic memory. He was very good at remembering small details and putting them together to form a picture which eluded other scholars. And he thought that he might just have a hunch as to where the Serapeum lay. But the problem was he didn't have a permit to excavate. So he decided to take matters into his own hands and to dig secretly at night to evade the Egyptian guards. And he would <clears throat> labour during the night and then just before dawn, cover up all the traces of his excavation, pretend that nothing had happened as the guards came past on their duty. And then when they knocked off again the next evening, he'd restart the excavations. And this cat and mouse game went on for over a year. And in the process, Mariette uncovered a wealth of objects, which he duly sent back to the Louvre. Not the papyrus documents they had hoped for, but nonetheless an extraordinary collection of ancient Egyptian statues and stele. And they were well pleased with what he had found. And eventually he did uh, follow his hunch and he excavated the Serapeum, the great underground catacomb of the sacred bulls of Egypt. This made him the most famous Egyptologist of his day. And promotion followed uh, to the Louvre. And eventually, in 1858, at the French government's uh, encouragement, the Egyptian authorities appointed Mariette as the first director of the Egyptian Antiquities Service and the first director of the new Egyptian Museum. So they put him in charge of safeguarding Egypt's patrimony for Egypt. Now, this was a bit like poacher turned gamekeeper. Here had been the man who had completely flaunted uh, the Egyptian authorities uh, uh, by excavating illegally. And now he was in charge of the whole of Egypt's ancient heritage. But actually, he acquitted himself pretty well. He was very assiduous in preserving future excavations for the Egyptian Museum, for the Egyptian people. Um, and he opened up the museum to ordinary Egyptians to give them really for the first time ever uh, an opportunity to look at the uh, patrimony from their ancient past. Well, Mariette's great moment in the sun, I suppose, came in 1859. One of the great events of 1869, by which time Marriott had been in post about a decade, uh, was the opening of the Suez Canal. Now, a triumph of French engineering, Ferdinand de Lesseps was the chief engineer, and it was decided that the, uh, the, the chief guest uh, at this great occasion should be none other than the French Empress, Eugénie. And who better to guide her on a trip down the Nile than Auguste Mariette, uh, her countryman and the foremost uh, authority on ancient Egypt. And you can imagine his pride as he showed his empress 
uh, all the sites that he had presided over the excavation of through the Egyptian Antiquities Service. But there was one final act in this drama, and that was to do with another great event that had been planned for the opening of the Suez Canal. And that was the official opening of the Royal Opera House in Cairo. The ruler of Egypt saw himself as a great modernizer. He wanted to ape the great capitals of Europe. And what better way to do it than to build an opera house in the French style? And what better way to inaugurate the Royal Opera House than to commission an opera with an ancient Egyptian theme, thus rather neatly uniting those threads of, of Egypt past, present and indeed future? And who better to commission for the scenario of that opera than the leading Egyptologist of the time, Auguste Mariette? And so Mariette came up with this storyline for the opera that would become Aida. He did more than that. He also planned the costumes and the set for the first performance of Aida. Drawing on his intimate knowledge of Egyptian antiquities, he came up with an extraordinary uh, array of sets and costumes and props modelled on the, the latest discoveries from the sands of Egypt. The only problem was that these were all being manufactured back in Paris and relations between France and Prussia were getting pretty hot uh, in 1869. They eventually led to the Franco-Prussian War. And this prevented the export of those props and stage sets in time for the opening performance at the Royal Opera House. So they had to fall back on another Verdi opera, Rigoletto, for the opening night. And it wasn't until 1871 uh, that Aida received its first performance. So Aida goes down in history as, as the great opera with an ancient Egyptian theme, but it was intimately bound up not only with the rediscovery of ancient Egypt, but with the, the new self-image of late 19th century modern Egypt. So if we move to our next vignette, and we fast forward now by another decade, here, for example, is, is Mariette, just a closing note on his story. Um, he is buried, uh, not in a cemetery, not in a churchyard, but actually in the grounds of the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Uh, and here is his sarcophagus in ancient Egyptian style, surmounted by a statue in very 19th century style. So, again, blending the old and the new. But despite Mariette's you know, best efforts uh, to preserve and protect Egypt's heritage, by the 1870s, it was a bit of a free-for-all uh, in terms of, of Egyptian excavation. Many of the digs were pretty shoddy. Um, they destroyed more than they recorded. Um, and scholars began to express real concern about the future of Egypt's heritage. And this is where our next character in the story uh, comes to the fore, uh, a, a remarkable woman called Amelia Edwards. Come at the hour cometh the woman, because, as I say, in the 1870s, um, Egypt's heritage was being lost at an alarming rate. Now, Amelia Edwards may have seemed like a rather unlikely champion of scientific archaeology. She started off life as a journalist uh, and a Victorian novelist, and she wrote sort of slightly racy novels, uh, the sorts of things that today you'd buy in a, an airport bookstore before a long-haul flight. But she was you know, a terrifically popular novelist. And then one summer, she decided to turn her hand to travel writing, and she wrote a book of her travels around Europe. 
1873, she thought, well, I'll do this again. I'll, I'll go and explore Europe and, and maybe there'll be another book in it. But the weather was so poor uh, that she and her friend decided on a bit of a whim uh, to divert from Europe and go somewhere where the weather was more predictably warm and sunny. And that, in 1873, was Egypt, which was one of the most popular destinations for the consumptives of Europe. And so Amelia Edwards arrives in Egypt uh, in 1873 and embarks, like all travellers at the time, on a trip up the Nile. And she's absolutely entranced by what she finds. Um, the, the conjunction of, of, of a rapidly modernising Egypt with the ancient remains of its pharaonic civilization, um, with the amazing climate and the un, unchanged, timeless scenes along the Nile. And the result was probably her most famous book, um, A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, uh, which was an instant bestseller. And, and actually has remained in print ever since. And I, and I commend it to you. It's a, it's a rollicking good read. Um, and I'll, I'll just read out a couple of little quotes from A Thousand Miles Up the Nile. It gives you a, a sense of Amelia Edwards' writing style. Um, she says a little differently at the beginning of the book. Um, in simple truth, we had drifted hither by accident with no excuse of health or business or any serious object whatsoever and had just taken refuge in Egypt as one might turn aside into Burlington Arcade or the Passage des Panorama to get out of the rain. Well, of course, she was being um, uh, very modest because as the book went on, she really found her stride and she started to not just describe what she saw in Egypt, but to really empathise with, with its ancient civilization uh, in Philae, one of the most beautiful sites in Egypt uh, at the first cataract. She wrote, if a sound of antique chanting were to be borne along the quiet air, if a procession of white-robed priests bearing aloft the veiled ark of the god were to come sweeping round between the palms and the pylons, we should not think it strange. One cannot but come away with a profound impression of the splendour and power of a religion which could command for its myths such faith, such homage, and such public works. So she was really falling under Egypt's spell. But she then realised the more she travelled in the country that its ancient past was under immense threat. And she decided to use her writing skills and her indefatigable, indefatigable networking skills to do something about it. And so when she got back home, she made a lot of money from a thousand miles up the Nile and she threw herself into what would now be her life's work, preserving and protecting Egypt's ancient heritage. And so she founded um, at a time when others were still ransacking uh, the great sites of Egypt. She founded the first society dedicated to its proper scientific exploration, the Egypt Exploration Fund, as it first was. Egypt Exploration Society as it subsequently became, which is still going strong today. Founded in 1882 with the express purpose of recording, before it was too late, all of those monuments which still stood testament to Egypt's pharaonic glories. And on the right-hand side here, you see an image of one of those early Egypt Exploration Fund digs uh, with artefacts being crated up and taken away for full study and publication. And so it's really Amelia Edwards 
who we have to thank for transforming the science of Egyptology from an antiquarian free-for-all, the preserve of treasure hunters and scoundrels, uh, into a proper scientific discipline uh, with scholars at the fore. And we will forever be in her debt. Amelia Edwards had strong views on most things, and she had a particularly strong opinion on who should lead the first dig for the newly funded and founded Egypt Exploration Fund. And she chose an unlikely man in many ways, um, a young man called Flinders Petrie. And here you see him lounging outside a rock-cut tomb at Giza with a stray dog for company. Um, he was a self-taught man. He had no academic training at all, but he had a real eye for detail. He was very interested in ancient measurements, for example. Um, and he was determined that when he dug a site, he would record even the most minute objects that earlier treasure hunters had tossed casually aside. And so he really began the modern scientific discovery of Egypt. He was also exemplary in publishing the results of his digs, usually within a year of finishing the excavation, which is a standard that very few archaeologists today uh, manage to adhere to. But life on a petri dig um, wasn't quite as glamorous as it might seem. And for a first-hand account of what it was like to accompany the great man on one of these early excavations, we have to turn to another individual whose anniversary we're celebrating this year. And if we look at these two images, this one and the next one, we will see two Victorian men who superficially look quite alike. I mean, they're both uh, heavily moustached and, and uh, bearded and, and look rather serious and dressed rather soberly. But in fact, they could not have been more different. The man on the left is Canon Hardwick Rawnsley, famous as one of the two co-founders of the National Trust exactly 125 years ago this year. The man on the right is our friend Flinders Petrie. Well, looks uh, might have suggested they had much in common, but their personal habits and way of life could not have been more different. But nonetheless, Canon Rawnsley um, visited one of Petrie's excavations and was evidently so impressed that he decided to send his son, Noel, on a future Petrie dig, perhaps as a kind of finishing school. Well, as finishing schools go, uh, it was certainly memorable, but perhaps not for the right reasons. And I want to read you a little extract from the book, uh, which recalls Noel Rawnsley's impression of life on a petri dig. First came an ice cold bath. Visions of ham and eggs are lost in the reality of other food. We sit on empty boxes to discuss our meals. The dining room is floored with sand. It is an oblong room and down its centre is a rough trestle table. The boards are somewhat warped and stained and on them range the bowls of food or opened tins covered with dishes or saucers to exclude the dust. Along each side wall is a single plank for a shelf where lie the records of the former excavations, a few odd finds, the public ink and pens and rolls of hieroglyphs copied. Well, the diet, and it was certainly not ham and eggs, consisted of tea, ship's biscuits and cold tinned tongue. 
half-empty tins were left to be served up again the following day. In the heat of Egypt, food poisoning was the regular result. It was even said that tins of food left over from one season were buried to be dug up again at the start of the next. Each tin would be tested by throwing it against a stone wall. If it survived without exploding, its contents were deemed fit for consumption. And as for sanitation, Petrie told his students, the desert is wide and there are many sheltered hollows. So as you can imagine, not exactly um, uh, uh, the lap of luxury. And the young Noel Rawnsley summed up the whole experience thus. An excavator's camp in the valley of the Nile is a thing apart, a rough sketch in mud bricks and sand, a little settlement of sunburnt men toiling in a thirsty land, alone with nature in one of her solemnest moods. His lasting impression was that the valley of the Nile is not a paradise, for there are dust and flies and smells and other disagreeable things. And if we look at the next slide, we see a contemporary photograph of one of Petrie's excavations. Here is that little mud hovel in which he and his assistants spent weeks, if not months, toiling in the dust, labouring beneath the sands of Egypt to excavate its ancient past. There in the middle, with a handkerchief over his head, you see Flinders Petrie himself. Sitting there next to him on a deck chair is his redoubtable wife, Hilda, who scarcely gets any of the credit. Actually, she did a lot of the illustration of Petrie's um, publications. She did a lot of the digging herself, um, but she uh, never really gets the credit to which she is, is due. And then you see a couple of his tr uh, trusted Egyptian labourers. So really an extraordinary um, way of life. But Petrie relished it. And the result was that over a, an archaeological career spanning some 30 or 40 years, he excavated just about every site in Egypt. And one can still go back to his publications today and consult them uh, with, with great reward. I have on my shelves a number of Petrie's publications from the 1890s and early 1900s. And they really are a, a kind of landmark in the history of, of archaeological publications. And if we look at the next slide, we'll see Petrie as an elderly man uh, at the collection which still bears his name uh, at University College London, the Petrie Museum of Egyptian Archaeology, with some of those many small finds that he so meticulously dug and recorded uh, from the sands of Egypt. So he's a great figure, but like many of the great figures in the book, um, uh, a somewhat controversial character, um, and his, uh, he had his pluses and his minuses, uh, even if he did science. Uh, a great service. Now, for our final instalment this evening, we're going to fast forward to the 1920s, and we're going to follow the clues that led Carter and Carnarvon to the greatest discovery in the history, not just of ancient Egypt, in the history of, of all archaeology, the tomb of Tutankhamun, the boy Pharaoh. The Valley of the Kings in the early 1920s <clears throat> looked like this. It was still um, untouched by tourism. It was still filled um, to a depth of many, many metres by loose stone chippings and rubble, which had been excavated from later tombs and just poured into the floor of the valley. It was pretty uh, unprepossessing and uncompromising terrain. But archaeologists knew that it was the tomb of the Valley of the Kings. 
um, that it held the tombs of, of Egypt's pharaohs. And so to get the permit to excavate in the Valley of the Kings was considered the kind of plum concession in the whole of Egypt. And the man who held it throughout much of the early 1900s um, was a New York lawyer and financier called Theodore Davis. And here you see him third from the left uh, with the waistcoat and the elaborate moustache surrounded by his uh, archaeologists because he was the patron. He bankrolled the excavations, but he needed professionals to do the digging for him. And Theodore Davis and his archaeologists uncovered many tombs in the Valley of the Kings. Um, and by 1913, when they'd been at it for all oh, the best part of a decade, he was pretty confident that anything that could be found had been found. And he confidently declared the Valley of the Tombs of the Kings is now exhausted. He handed back his permit to excavate and he returned to his home in New York, where he died just a year later. And then the world was plunged into the First World War. And very little excavation could take place. But just before war was declared, just in that narrow window between Davis handing back his concession and, and the outbreak of war, another man snapped up the concession. Is it what he'd been waiting for, for for many, many years? And the first individual is Lord Carnarvon. The Earl of Carnarvon, bit of a dilettante, bit of a, a fast liver, um, an early proponent of the motor car had a motoring accident which left his leg in permanent pain, which was exacerbated by the cold, damp winters of England. And so in the early 1900s, his doctor persuaded him that he really ought to go for the winter months to a warmer, drier climate where he wouldn't suffer so much from the rheumatic pain in his leg. And so he took to spending winters in Egypt, uh, in Luxor, uh, and eventually at the, the Winter Palace Hotel. And he would sit there on the veranda, as you can still do today, look across the Nile to the western hills and dream of what might lie in the valleys of the kings and queens hidden within those hills. And although he was an enormously wealthy man, what Carnarvon needed if he was to realise his ambition of digging in the Valley of the Kings was a well-trained archaeologist. And the next slide shows the man that he paired up with, Howard Carter who had actually worked for Theodore Davis uh, some years earlier, had gained a really intimate knowledge of the Valley of the Kings and the surrounding hills, and who believed, unlike Davis, that the Valley of the Kings was not exhausted. Carter had, well, more than a hunch, he had a, a deep-seated conviction that there might be one more tomb to be found in the Valley of the Kings. Well, what led him to that conviction? There were a few clues that Davis had found. There was a faience cup that had been found under a boulder in the Valley of the Kings, bearing the name of a pretty unknown king, Tutankhamun. People vaguely knew of his existence, but he didn't really loom large in the monumental record. Then Davis found an embalming cache. Uh, a collection of linen wrappings and, and unguent jars that had obviously been left over from a royal mummification somewhere nearby. Again, they bore the name of Tutankhamun. And the third clue was an empty chamber filled with mud, but with a few fragments of gold foil, which again bore the name of this unknown King Tutankhamun. 
Well, putting together those clues, the cup, the mummified the mummification bandages, and the fragments of gold foil, Carter really felt in his bones that the tomb of Tutankhamun must lie somewhere nearby and had not yet been found. And so he determined to work away as long as it took until he discovered what he believed still lay in the Valley of the Kings. Now, as I've mentioned, uh, the valley was filled up the bottom of the valley with, with hundreds of thousands of tons of stone fragments. And these all had to be carefully taken away by a specially built railway. It took years and years to excavate down to the bedrock. And you know, by 1922, when Carter and Carnarvon had been at this for five long years with, with really no uh, fines to show for it, Carter was, was still convinced there was something to be found, but Carnarvon was, he was getting tired. His fortune was not inexhaustible, and, and he really didn't know whether he wanted to continue throwing good money after bad. And he was about to call it a day. And Carter, un, very unusually, drove up to Highclere Castle, uh, the seat of the Earls of Carnarvon, and begged Carnarvon face to face for just one more season, just one last chance in the Valley of the Kings to find what he believed still lay to be discovered. And reluctantly, Carnarvon agreed. And that new season of excavation got underway at the end of October 1922. Well, within just a few days of the start of the excavation, the Egyptian workmen had found a stone step cut in the valley floor. And that stone step, when cleared, yielded a descending staircase. And that descending staircase finished with a rubble wall. And on that rubble wall were some seal impressions, which suggested that this was indeed a royal tomb. And Carter sent uh, a telegram to Carnarvon, his patron, back in England. At last, have made wonderful discovery in the valley, a royal tomb with seals intact, recovered same for your arrival. Congratulations. And Carnarvon immediately set off from England by railway, by steamer, by railway again, arriving in Luxor towards the end of November. And then it was a question of breaking through that rubble wall. And so little bit by little bit, they used their chisels. And what did they find beyond the rubble wall? But a corridor filled to the ceiling with yet more rubble, which had to be painstakingly excavated until it was clear. And at the end of that corridor, there was another rubble wall also covered in seal impressions. So two walls and a corridor. And then eventually, on that day of days, uh, it was Carter who, with chisel in hand, watched by Lord Carnarvon, by Carnarvon's daughter, uh, and by an English engineer, Arthur Callender. He made a small hole in the rubble wall and held a, a lighted candle through uh, the opening to see what he could see. 
And I'm now going to read <clears throat> from Carter's journal from that day, the 26th of November, 1922. Candles were procured. The all-important telltale for foul gases when opening an ancient subterranean chamber. I widened the breach and by means of the candle looked in while Lord C, Lady E and Calendar with the Rices, the Egyptian foreman, waited in anxious expectation. It was some time before one could see the hot air escaping caused the candle to flicker. But as soon as one's eyes became accustomed to the glimmer of light, the interior of the chamber gradually loomed before one with its strange and wonderful medley of extraordinary and beautiful objects heaped one upon another. There was naturally short suspense for those present who could not see. When Lord Carnarvon said to me, can you see anything? I replied to him, yes, it is wonderful. Well, if that doesn't sound quite the familiar extract, it's because when Carter came to write up his journal as the publication of the Tomb of Tutankhamun, he had the assistance of a ghostwriter, a professor of English literature uh, at Cairo, who helped him polish his prose a little and add a little more panache and excitement. And so what was published is the more famous account. And here it is. At first, I could see nothing. The hot air escaping from the chamber, causing the candle flame to flicker. But presently, as my eyes grew accustomed to the light, details of the room within emerged slowly from the mist. Strange animals, statues, and gold. Everywhere, the glint of gold. For the moment, an eternity it must have seemed to the others standing by, I was struck dumb with amazement. And when Lord Carnarvon, unable to stand the suspense any longer, inquired anxiously, can you see anything? It was all I could do to get out the words, yes, wonderful things. And they had indeed found wonderful things and foremost among the five and a half thousand objects interred in Tutankhamun's tomb was that great icon of ancient Egyptian civilization, the gold funerary mask of the boy pharaoh. And thus, in a sense, ends the golden age of Egyptology with a golden mask. It was a century between decipherment and discovery, which saw Egyptology emerge from its roots in antiquarianism and political rivalry into the 20th century and the spotlight of scientific inquiry. It was a century which saw an astonishing range of figures, men and women, uh, some of them scholars, some of them scoundrels, um, who were nonetheless motivated by that common desire to seek for the glories of an ancient civilization beneath the sands. And it was a century which really impressed upon the Western mind and the Western imagination, that peculiar allure of ancient Egypt, which has not left us in the century since. Thank you very much indeed. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Toby Wilkinson. His book, A World Beneath the Sands, Adventurers and Archaeologists in the Golden Age of Egyptology, is on sale now, published by Picador. And if you're interested in attending one of our virtual lectures live and putting your own questions to the experts, you can find out more at historyextra.com forward slash events. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tomorrow we've got another episode on everything you wanted to know about the Roman emperors. Hey.